we assume that the knowledge that's available to us now, like the things that we kind of understand about why that might have happened, actually were knowable at the time, that we could have known those for sure. And then as we go back and think about those things, we try to make the world make sense. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting-edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Valley podcast. Hey, everybody that listens to Superhumans at Work, know that all of these episodes are recorded with a live studio audience. Mind Valley members get a chance to join these sessions with the author themselves while we record these sessions. And at the end of every show, they actually get to participate in a Q&A session as well. If ever you're interested in joining Mind Valley All Access and become a member yourself, you'll get access to all the incredible courses from Mind Valley and so much more to be involved with Superhumans at Work, the Mind Valley podcast, and all the other incredible features when you become a member. We are disrupting the way that education works for the 21st century and we want you to be a part of it. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman so you can learn more about this incredible offer, which will cost you less than $2 a day. That's mindvalley.com forward slash S-U-P-E-R-H-U-M-A-N. Now, let's get started with the show. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Mark Campbell. Welcome back to an episode of Superhumans at Work. I have an incredible guest today who is a former champion in poker. If you've ever been someone who's played poker, Texas Hold'em, or any kind of game where you not only play with your cards, but you also negotiate and you play with other players, there's a lot of decisions that need to be made. And what I find fascinating about Annie is that she actually was able to mix a lot of the skills that she developed in poker and apply directly into the business world. Now, she has won several tournaments, including the WSOP or the World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions. She also has her golden bracelet from where she outbeat a field of 234 players. She has played in multiple other tournaments where she finds herself being able to win. And guess this, Back in 2012, she retired from poker and went full-time into writing literature and consulting businesses when it comes to the art of decision-making. Her latest book, How to Decide Simple Tools for Making Better Choices, has just been released at the end of 2020, and we're going to be focusing on these aspects because how do you make your decisions? The big ones, the small ones in business, in your personal life. Do you have a framework? Do you have a process? Should you have one? This is what we're going to be digging deeper with Annie Duke, who's with me right now. Annie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Now, what I find fascinating, because you've went into the field of poker, yet you had this whole background when it comes to cognitive science, and you really studied the element of human psychology. And so I'd be very curious to start there and understand where did the idea of understanding psychology really support you in the place where you were going and playing poker against other players? So it's so funny. So when I was playing poker, people used to always say like, oh, are you analyzing me? I think that's because when people, at least at the time, I think it's less so now, but at the time when people thought about psychology, they thought about clinical psychology, like a psychotherapist, which is actually a very small part of psychology. There's this whole field of cognitive psychology, experimental psychology, behavioral psychology, which is really basically studying how do human beings interact with their environment, which would include like a huge variety of topics from 
how do we see colors and process colors? How do we hear sounds, taste? So things that have to do a little bit more in the physiology world, but then there's how do you learn language? How do you learn a first language? That would be in the psychology department. And then there's this huge field, which has to do with decision-making, judgment, learning, and how do we learn? And that stretches all the way from what people are probably familiar with, Pavlov and the dogs, where he rang a bell and the dogs connected the bell ringing with food. He was a psychologist, right? And then you get into sort of what's been very popular now, which would be like the work of Daniel Kahneman and thinking fast and slow. And that's sitting pretty firmly in psychology or like Angela Duckworth's grit. She's a psychologist. So I was doing this back in the 90s when I think, you know, this sort of popular writing and behavioral psychology from like Kahneman and Duckworth didn't exist yet. So everybody assumed I was psychoanalyzing them at the table, but I wasn't. Instead, what I understood were lots of things about biases and heuristics, the way that your decision-making can go south, the way that luck and hidden information can really frustrate your ability to do well, particularly in a high-stakes situation. And so that's actually what I was thinking really deeply about. And I was also thinking about how can you use the information that's available to you at the table to be able to model your opponent, because that was more in the space of the kind of psychology that I was studying. So that's really what I was marrying together. I love it. And in this game of poker, you know, it's very high stakes. And I mean, at the level that you were playing a lot of money on the table, you're playing against the best players in the world. And so you would think everybody has these different types of strategy. And so I find it very fascinating that you seem to have been able to gracefully just take this. And I think most people assume you've taken what you've learned in poker and you translated it to in the business world. But I think you've always been embedded in the business world to start with and you've joined into the poker. Have you noticed that what you've developed there in the poker world was actually translated into the business or were you translated? your business skills into the world of poker? So I started off pretty firmly in academics, really thinking about like the academic research on learning in particular and how you learn. And then I started playing poker and I was pretty immersed in poker. And what I've been doing in graduate school is certainly informing my thinking about poker. But at that point, I was kind of learning the game. And it's a really complex game. It's really, really hard. So I kind of like I had been really deep in the academics and I was really deep in the poker. And then the way I sort of explained it is I kind of stuck my head up. And I sort of looked around and said, oh, wait a minute. These two things really interact with each other in like this super interesting way. And exploring that intersection between poker and the work that I've been doing in cognitive psychology, that's really like where the interesting stuff is. So what I would say is it's not like the work that I had done in cognitive psychology told me how to think about poker or poker told me how to think about the business world or the psychological aspects of the business world. It's that there was this really cool conversation happening between the two that I just started listening really carefully to. And then about eight years into my poker career, I got asked to speak to a group of options traders, actually, to talk about how poker might inform risk. And I didn't talk so much about risk. I actually talked about how this problem of uncertainty makes it so that your risk attitudes like the way that you think about risk, how much risk am I willing to take on? How risky am I willing to be? That it gets really distorted depending on kind of like what's happening in your environment, whether you're winning or losing. And then I realized, oh, that's kind of an interesting angle to start thinking about this stuff. And that's when I started developing like sort of the head on like business consulting and working in the business world that eventually ended up with me retiring from poker and then writing 
in the space. So yeah, it wasn't like one or the other. It was actually that both things had to exist and I had to have explored both things to sort of develop the way that I look at the world. Mm. Oh, I love that. As you're talking about this, especially with the fact that you went out and you spoke to people within the investment world. I mean, a lot of us have, you know, always look in hindsight of an event that would happen. And I'm just going to use, you know, in the early 2020, I remember COVID hit and it became international news and a stock market went down. And, you know, you would think, logically, we all would have been able to go, hey, let's look at the data. The companies didn't change that much. There's obviously going to be a big shift in people consuming digital and people working from home. Like we can look back at those data points and be like, wow, I should have invested everything when everything was down. It was such a clear thing. It's almost like in hindsight, with more information, you can see these decisions that you could have made. And there's always a hindsight window that you look back and you're like, oh, why didn't I make those decisions then? Which kind of brings me to where I think you speak a lot about is how do you make those decisions when you don't have those informations available, yet we sometimes feel paralyzed to make decisions when the stakes are high? Is this a natural tendency as humans that we're flawed about? Like what's going on there? Let me just circle back to the hindsight part mm. and give you a hypothetical. I want to challenge you on something. Oh, I like a challenge. Okay. So let's imagine a counterfactual world, just a world that did not occur where the stock market goes down and it stays down. Tell me the story about all the people who decided that they were bullish on the stock market and they decided to buy. Now you tell me the story about why they should have known because I know you can do it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a fun exercise because then I'd be like, wow, I can't believe you know when everything went down, of course it all went down and some people decided to jump in and decided to buy and all thinking that it would go back up, but really it was already inflated. People should have known that this corrected it to the level that it needed to go. And, you know, again, a lot of people lost money because it didn't go back up. It went back to where it was supposed to be the whole time. And we should have seen this all along. There you go. So this <laughs> is the problem. So the reason why I just cued in on that with you is that this is a huge problem with learning how to be a good decision maker is that mm. when we try to look back at our decisions, there's all sorts of things that go wrong. And it's because you can kind of think about it this way. At the moment, let's say it's the end of March and the, the market is tanked. There's all sorts of ways that the future could turn out. The market could go up a little. It could go up to previous levels. It could continue to go down. Like you could imagine if businesses aren't recovering, you could assume that like, for example, Amazon's going to do well. But when you look at the full S&P 500 and the number of things that actually really depend if it was less bullish on the labor market returning and whatever, you know, there's a variety of things that could have caused it to stay low. There's also a variety of theses that you could have had that would have been pretty reasonable for it going up and you could assign probabilities to all of those things, right? So it could stay where it is. It could go up a little. It could go down a little bit more. It could really boom. We could go into a depression and you could assign a probability to all those things. So think about that like a tree, right? Like here I'm standing here and here are all the possible futures and I can think about all the probabilities that I could assign to those possible futures. But this is the problem. You like just got deep down into the problem we have as decision makers is now when we're looking back, we know how it turned out. So what our mind does is a few things. It takes a cognitive chainsaw and lops off all those branches of the tree and leaves only the stock market sword. And then we do a couple of things. The first is resulting, is we assume it would have been a good decision to be bullish on the market and a bad decision to be bearish on the market. But notice that the only information that we have, because I don't know what was the person thinking, 
who was bearish on the market? What did their portfolio look like? What kind of hedges did they have against that? So on and so forth, right? How long were their positions? How short were their I don't know any of those things. So we assume that must have been a bad decision. And someone who was long the market, it must have been a good decision. But what if the person who was long the market, the reason why they were long the market was because they thought that the virus would go away by April. Does that make that a good decision? I would argue not. But we don't know anything about the decision. So we just assume, I know that it went well. So therefore, if you were long, must have been a good decision. If you were short, it must have been a bad decision. Then we do the second thing, which is hindsight bias, which we assume that the knowledge that's available to us now, like the things that we kind of understand about why that might have happened, actually were knowable at the time, that we could have known those for sure. And then as we go back and think about those things, we try to make the world make sense. So what happens is that we start looking at people who might have embarrassed the market and thinking that was pretty bad decision making and people who were bullish on the market, it was good decision making, but I don't know enough about either in order to know whether it was a good decision at all. I just know what the result was and I know about hindsight bias. That brings a whole new dimension of looking at how these decisions are made. And I can't help but think, and I know we talked about this before the call with our live audience here, is you know, a lot of CEOs or people that are in decision positions get to make a lot of calls and they seem to be able to say every time the call is good, they're like, oh yeah, this is where I'm very totally skilled. Knew and like, it. Uh, yeah, I knew it and everything turned out wrong. If, if there's a mistake that happens, they'll be able to pinpoint something that happens that's kind of external. So then they find themselves being very right. And I know you talked about this concept of a lot of people making decisions from the gut, but not necessarily being the most accurate way of making decisions. So what's the process that we should be looking at when it comes to decision-making to be more mature about the way we go at it? So we can kind of get there by thinking about how we might resolve this resulting in hindsight bias problem that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. And I just gave you a clue, right? I said, well, what you really want to do is think about at the time that the decision was being made, what were the reasonable ways that the world could unfold? Try to think about what the probabilities of those things occurring are, because obviously it's hard otherwise to sort of figure out if this decision is good. Like if I make a decision to do something where 98% of the time I go broke and 2% of the time I, you know, make $10,000 and it happens that I make $10,000, I don't want to think, oh, that was a really good decision. So I have to have some sense of like how likely were the things to occur and like, what were the possible outcomes, right? So I want to sort of try to reconstruct some sort of tree. And then the other thing I want to do is what I just said, which is called knowledge tracking, which is at the time of the decision, what was actually knowable? Because we have this problem, which is when information reveals itself after the fact, we start to get that kind of I knew it feeling. That's sort of what you're talking about with the CEOs, right? Like we get that I knew it feeling. The thing is you didn't know it because you don't have a time machine and you're not omniscient. You know, one of my favorite examples of this kind of I knew it problem happened. I was in a grocery store and someone was listening to this woman. This man was listening to this woman talking on the cell phone and she had an accent and she got off the phone. And he said to her, excuse me, are you Italian? And she said, no, I'm Greek. And he said, I knew it. I was like, <laughs> what? you totally didn't know it. You just asked if she was Italian. I don't even know what you're talking about. But this is actually a really big problem in decision-making. So we want to go back and you could think about doing knowledge tracking, like have a column for here's what was knowable at the time. And here's what I did know at the time. This is what I was thinking about. This is what could have been known at the time. 
What was the decision of what was the outcome? And then what revealed itself after the fact? And then with the things that revealed themselves after the fact, simple question, wasn't knowable beforehand at a cost that I could have afforded? Because obviously, like if I'm thinking about taking a job in Boston and I'm worried about the weather, it's knowable whether I like Boston winters, but I can't afford it because I can't afford to go there for six months before deciding, right? So we would want to do that in retrospect. So that gives us the clue into what a really good decision process would look like, which would be, I don't want to have to do those things in retrospect. I don't want to have to go back and try to recreate it, particularly with my mind that's riddled with all sorts of motivations for making the world make sense in the way that you did when you said, obviously, the stock market was going to go up and you gave a very valid, super rational, very, very smart reason for why that was going to be. But if you could go back and look at at that moment, if you had written down here are the different ways I think it could go. Here are the reasons I think it could go that way. Here are the different probabilities. Now you stop yourself from sort of imposing that false determinism like on the world and you can go back and look. So that gives us the clue as to what a good decision process looks like. It's to do the things that you wish you had done when you're looking back at a decision and actually do that at the time of the decision. That does two things for you. It makes your decisions better in the moment. But now it also lets you close these feedback loops that let you start to become much more efficient and much more accurate in the things that you learn from your past decisions. I see really two major elements from what you're saying right now that once you start learning the methodology that you speak about is you're trying to increase the number of times you make the better decision. Your hit rate's going to go up when you start learning this process. Yeah. Second is that you actually have now kind of a grade sheet for every decision you make to see how rational did I make that decision versus how emotional I've done that decision. Because I feel like most decisions are always made emotionally. Is that just a constant? Like well, it's interesting. I think it depends on what type of decision it is. So when you get to do that look back, it's so incredibly important because you can see what were you thinking at the time. It allows you to disconnect from what the actual outcome was, right? Like it allows you to disconnect from the stock market happened to go up. And then now that's actually changing your view. And that then allows us actually to help with this emotional problem. So let me just sort of talk about the two places where I think that emotional decision-making comes into place. Basically, we can think about how emotion comes in two different ways. The first is in the wake of bad outcomes. And we've all felt this, right? Particularly one that you feel wasn't your fault. Like it was really unfair. Like somebody did something that made things go awry or you just got bad luck. In those moments, if you try to make any kind of decisions, you're going to be really, really emotional. And in fact, poker players have a word for it. It's called tilt. If anybody's ever played one of those old pinball machines, if you shake it too much, it stops working. So you can think about it. If you shake your brain too much by getting too emotional, it'll kind of stop working and then you'll make bad decisions. So that's one thing that you do want to kind of deal with. In fact, this type of decision process really helps with that because you notice that there's kind of a deliberative element to this decision process where you're trying to lay out what are the different ways that things can turn out? What could I find out that would help me to figure that out? What are the probabilities of those occurring? And that just tends to sort of calm your emotions down. But the other place that I think that people make, you know, maybe emotional decision-making or maybe the right word is like, they'll tend to go with their gut or they'll wing it or something like that is actually when they can feel the decision is like really, really complex and that it's going to be a decision where they feel like they couldn't find a right answer. 
And then they'll do the opposite. They'll spend a lot of time like deliberating and analyzing on decisions that they do feel like have some sort of solution. And what's bad about that is that you're actually flipping when you should be spending your decision-making time. So let me give you an example to maybe try to help you. I'm sure you know people who spend like 15 minutes trying to order something off a menu. You know <laughs> Not people. me, but I, I get frustrated by the ones who do. Right. So let's think about why they do that. I think the reason that they do that is it feels like there's an answer in the sense that like, this is about my own preferences. Like I should know what I like to eat and what I don't like to eat. I should be able to ask the wait staff what they've had. I should be able to quiz other people what they're thinking. And I think it feels to people like all the elements are there for them to be able to actually get a right answer for that question. And then there's the separate problem that they're going to get an answer pretty quickly. And I think that we've all had that feeling where we're like trying to decide between two dishes on a menu and then we order something that's not very good. And what do we say to ourselves immediately? Oh, that was such a mistake. I should have ordered the other thing, which of course is silly because as I say, you don't have a time machine. So you're trying to make your best guess. But the reason why I think people go really slow on that is that they're approaching it as if it's a little bit two plus two equals four alike, and that they should actually be able to get that almost like it's a mathematical equation, right? Like they should be able to get it right. So they're spending a lot of time on that decision, which by the way, is pretty much of no consequence. But when you get to something really complicated, like a business strategy or sometimes like who to marry, right? This very consequential decision or sometimes in the hiring process, or I've seen it in venture, what company to fund, where particularly if you're early, if you're like at the angel stage, obviously, if you're series D, there's lots and lots of data, you can crunch that data, you're going to be able to come to some pretty good answers, you already know your customer acquisition costs and traction and so on and so forth. But you're at angel, right? Now, when we think about those two problems, right, luck, there's gonna be a very big influence of luck on how that turns out. Then also this hidden information problem. Now you're as much behind what we would call the veil of ignorance or sort of acting with as little information as you possibly could as you're thinking about sort of the cycle of venture, right? That when that happens, people all of a sudden are like, well, I'm just going to go with my gut. Because I think they think this is too complicated. The answer is too hard. It's really unknowable. But the funny thing about those two decisions is they're both unknowable. You can't know with 100% accuracy whether you're going to like the dish you order off a menu, just as you can't know with 100% accuracy whether that company that you invest in is actually going to end up being a unicorn. Can't know either of those things. It's just one feels really knowable because it's about your own preferences, and one feels much less knowable. But what's interesting is that what should tell you how much time should I spend trying to actually solve this And that doesn't mean you're going to get to the bullseye. It means so that I can get somewhere on the target, which is going to improve the quality of my decision. That should be determined completely by consequence. How consequential is the decision? What's the impact of the decision? And when you're ordering off a menu, the answer is none. So your lunch was bad. Okay, whatever. Like that's not going to affect your happiness much. Like, and you're going to get to order another lunch in like six hours. But when you're investing in a company, that's actually quite a consequential decision. That's a pretty high impact decision. And you should be actually trying to spend a little bit more time with that instead of doing what people say, like, I look the founder in the eye. Okay. <laughs> Maybe you should do more than that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the new science. And then what happens? Your problem, now. right? Like yeah. they invest in a company that does really well. They're like, see, I knew it. You know, and they invest in a company that does really poorly. They're like, oh, I just got unlucky. You know, a lot of companies fail. 
Uh, they justify it. Well, our ego is always in the place to kind of justify exactly us and make right. us right. This is really fascinating. And, you know, when we think about these decisions in life, you know, the ordering lunch is a great example of how inconsequential. Now you're talking about investing, but again, you talk about getting married or should I quit my job? Should I work the corporate ladder? Should I start my own company? Should I completely change the niche or the industry that I'm working in, given the consequences happening in the landscape? And this is really where I wanted to make sure that we can leave with something to take away is that if I'm ready to step up, I understand that I'm going to be biased myself because I'm a human being. I have these emotional biases. And even if I bring in the element that sometimes we don't have unlimited time, we're more in a limited time space where we have to make those decisions. What are some of the frameworks that we can introduce and we can bring into our everyday lives so that we can start having kind of that bullseye, not necessarily on, but at least an orb cloud around it so that we can be making better yeah. decisions? You know, number one, like for pretty much any decision you make, write at least a little something down. And depending on how much impact the decision is going to have, write more down. Really try to write down, like, what's my rationale? What am I thinking? Why do I believe that this is the right decision? What do I think that my options are? What do I think the outcome of those options are? What do I think the probabilities of those are? Now, for something like a menu, I don't want you to do that. I want you to flip a coin, figure out what the things on the menu like are, and then flip a coin. That's as much process as you need to do for a menu because it doesn't really matter. One thing that sort of people don't think about when they think about impact is the more quittable a decision is, in other words, the more that I can abandon course and go and do something else. Also, you should lower the amount of decision-making time that you enter into it. But then one of the things that you're writing down is here's my exit plan. It's going to be really easy for me to exit when the world tells me to do so. So that you can go back and you can look like, oh, I knew there might be a bad outcome, but I actually had a plan for it. And I knew that if this happened, I was going to leave. Even if you just write that down, that's great. The more hedgeable a decision is, the less time you need to spend. So that's also a really good framework to think about for those who don't know what a hedge is. It's something that mitigates the impact of a bad outcome. So insurance would be a classic example of a hedge. I'm not hoping that my house burns down, but I have insurance just in case. If you leave extra time to get to work because you have a really important meeting, the extra time that you set aside, that's a hedge. You're probably not going to need it and you'll probably get to work really early and then you'll be twiddling your thumbs a little bit when you could have been sitting at home, but you're willing to pay that cost in order to hedge against being late. Another example of a hedge would be if your heart's desire is an outdoor wedding, you could rent a tent that you're hoping you don't use. But just in case there's bad weather, that's a great hedge. So a hedge is something that you pay for that you're hoping you don't use. That's the key. You're hoping you don't use it so that it will mitigate the effects of having a bad outcome. That hoping you don't use, though, remember resulting, is doesn't mean that when the weather is bright and sunny that you should regret having gotten the tent because you'll have written it down. But that's another way that you can go really quickly. So that's a really good model to apply to decision-making. Probably the most important model that you can apply to decision-making is inside-outside view, which is to understand that all of these biases that we have, like we've touched a little bit on self-serving bias, this sort of ego protection that we do as we're trying to think about why things happened or they didn't which goes into self-serving bias or motivated reasoning, confirmation bias, everybody has heard about, overconfidence, like all these things. These are all in the inside view, which is basically when we're approaching decisions, we're approaching it from our own perspective. 
So these are going to be like the mental models that we tend to apply to the world or what our gut wants to tell us. Our gut is in the inside view. And usually what it means is that we're trying to reason about the world to get to the conclusion that we already want to get to, which might be that we're great decision makers, right? That's where you get like overconfidence. It might be like we have control over our own destinies and we're trying to reason about the world in that way. So one of the really important frameworks to apply to decision making is to always be trying to get to the outside view. And you can do that in two ways. One is to go and try to figure out, are there any like statistics that would kind of tell me something about my decision? So an example would be if you're thinking about opening a restaurant when it's not COVID and you have some sort of location that you're thinking about and your estimate is that your restaurant has a 90% chance of being successful at the end of year one. So that's what you estimate. It's really good to say, well, let me try to get to the outside view, not just what I think. And let me look up what percentage of restaurants that have been started are still you know, successful or still operating at the end of the year one. And so you could go look that up. The answer for that is 40%, by the way. And if you see that and you say, wait a minute, I think that I'm going to succeed 90% of the time, but the world is kind of saying I'm going to succeed 40% of the time. Let me adjust my estimate. And it doesn't mean you would adjust it to 40% because maybe you are better than average. You could be. But you certainly probably aren't that much better than average. So you'd, that would get you to sort of bring it down. So that's one way to do it is just go look at, try to figure out what's true of the world and look for statistics that would help you tell that or data. The other thing, and this is one of the most important things, is to get other people to look at your situation and give you some thoughts about what the appropriate decision is. But the key with that is, that when you're trying to get that feedback from other people, don't tell them what you think. In other words, don't say, I'm thinking about quitting my job. I think that I should. I'm leaning toward yes. And here's why, and here's all the reasons why I think it would be a really good idea to quit my job. What do you think? Because now you've already biased the person that you're trying to get advice from. Instead, say, I'm kind of trying to decide whether I should stay in my job or quit. Here's sort of facts about the job that I'm in. Here's kind of what I'm considering as my alternatives. I'd love to get your thoughts. And notice that I haven't actually said which thing I'm leaning toward. I've just given you the information about what my alternatives are, right? And so that's like a way better way to do it. There are ways to do that really systematically that really reduce the influence of your opinion on other people's or their opinion on you. That's outlined in the book, but that's probably the biggest framework is you have to start getting to the outside view. You have to start seeing your situation as somebody else would see your situation as much as possible. I love it. And you know, one of the big things from especially the first part that you explained is almost we should have this sort of decision-making journal to allow us to kind of mature in the way that we make these decisions. And we would catch, I mean, every time we'd make a quote-unquote good decision, and then we can look back at the journal and be like, oh yeah, I just kind of flipped a coin on, should I put all my money into Bitcoin? And then it went up. I'm a great decision-maker. Right, and it's of- like, eh, no, you're not. <laughs> yeah, so I actually shy a little bit away from the term journal only because mm. I'm somebody who hates extra work. So (laughs) this is literally just because of who I am. I don't like extra work. And so I feel like a decision journal feels like extra work, like you're doing an extra step where you're sort of recording things afterwards. The way that I talk about decisions, you naturally produce something that looks like a journal, right? So like if you're doing a team decision, for example, I'll explain. 
you would think about what's the decision that's at hand that the team has to make. You would figure out what the feedback is that the team needs. So as an example, if you're thinking about developing, if you're trying to decide between two products, let's say that you want to develop, you would think about what do we need to know about the customer base? What do we have to think about what we predict like traction will be? How long are the timelines for each of those? What do we think the investments are going to be? you know, so and so forth. So you would figure out sort of what are the opinions that you're trying to get? And then you would ultimately be asking the members of the group, which product do you think we should actually invest in? How much? What's your rationale for that, right? So you figure out what is it, you sort of figure out a decision rubric. What are the opinions that we're trying to elicit from the group in order to make this decision? Then remember, we don't want people to sort of cross-pollinate their opinions because that's really bad. They influence each other. You would send that out to the people who you're trying to get information from who are going to be in the group discussion. You would send that out prior to coming into the group and ask them to answer those questions asynchronously and independently. So now they're like in a bubble. This is really important. People on teams don't like to disagree with each other. You get a lot of velocity behind agreement and consensus. And if somebody in the room senses that there's a lot of consensus around, say, product A versus product B, and they're a product B believer, they're very unlikely to say so. And I'd say it's even multiplied if that's the decision where the CEO comes in saying, all right, oh we're going to decision right? between A and B, but I really like A. Who disagrees? You're like, my job. Right. Or tell me why I'm wrong. That's what they'll yeah. do. I love A. <laughs> tell me why I'm wrong. It's like, okay, nobody's really telling you why they're wrong there. I'm just letting you know. You just checked a box that didn't actually do mm. what you thought it was going to do. So if you ask your team separately, though, no notice, nobody knows they are disagreeing with anyone because they're just offering their opinion independently from everybody else. So then you can now bring that together in a central hub. You could do it on sheets. You could do it in docs. You could do it in Airtable. You could do it on Coda, right? Like there's all these different wonderful places where you can bring that together. Everybody can then look at the opinions and the rationales that the group has for, you know, what they think about product A, what they think about product B, which one they prefer to invest in. And now you're doing the maximum information discovery because when you discover information in a group setting, you actually discover very little of it. And the science is very clear on that. So you're maximizing the information discovery. You're getting to see the dispersion of opinion that exists in the group. But notice what you've done. Why do you need a decision journal now? You don't because all of that information is now recorded for you as part of a great decision process. So it's not extra work. It is the work. It's the work of great decision-making that naturally is going to produce like this evidentiary record that now as a team, you can now go back and look and you can say, well, what did we all think at the time? What was the thesis as to why we invested in A versus B, right? What were we thinking about our customers? What were the predictions that we made about traction or how long it was going to take to develop it or what the costs were going to be? What did the market look like to us at the time? What were we thinking about the competitive landscape? Now you don't have to wonder. Because it's all there. So it is the decision process that produces that. It's not like an extra step of, okay, I've made the decision. Let me go record my thoughts. If that makes sense. It makes sense. And then if you built it into the process, then it's not like, oh, I need to go and check off this box of journaling now that I've done it. It is the way you do it. And that's a different mentality and it's a different way to approach it. 
Annie, I wanted to ask one more thing here, which is actually the opposite of, you know, somebody that maybe is making a decision from the gut is what about when I'm in a situation where I'm paralyzed to make a decision because I don't have any information. And I know there's a lot of people that might be facing what is, you know, paralysis by analysis. And now you feel like the person looking at the menu can't go ahead and flip a coin because now there's more at stakes than just what my lunch is going to be. What are ways to actually shorten that time gap and deal with it? Yeah, so there's a couple of things that you can do. So the first thing is identify what the impact of the decision is. And one of the best ways to do that, because what happens is that we get caught up in what the short-term consequences are, which is really just regret. That's not an actual consequence. I mean, it is in a psychological sense that you feel regret that you ordered the chicken, right? But that's not really what we're thinking about when we're thinking about impact. We're thinking about impact as, is this, how much is this either moving me advancing me toward my goal or causing me to retreat away from it. So the first thing is to get at that. And you can do that through what I call the happiness test, which is to say in a year, is this going to have affected my happiness at all? Happiness is just a proxy there. You can substitute anything in there. Is this going to have affected my business at all or whatever? And the answer obviously for a menu is no. And then you can say in a month, is this going to have had any effect on my happiness or in a week and and kind of the shorter the time period in which it's not really going to have had an impact the faster that you can go. And in that case, there should be no paralysis because what you're just saying is this is a decision of no consequence. It might feel like it does because I'm going to feel regret, but, you know, I only know what I know, so I'm going to flip a coin. So that's one thing. Number two is to think about whether the option repeats. So dating versus marrying. So dating, you can date a lot of people. So even if you have one bad date, you can go on another date pretty quickly. Ordering off a menu, same thing, something on Netflix. And in business, obviously, there are repeating options, which can help you because you get another crack at it. You get, you know, that's what they talk about, like these at-bats or shots on goal. The more shots on goal that you can get, the less that you should be worried about missing one shot, right? So you can then go faster. That quitability thing is also really, really important for thinking about that. The more reversible it is, which also has to do with optionality, the faster you can go. But here's the really big one that can help you, because this is the situation under which most people get it caught in analysis, paralysis or paralysis by analysis, is let's say that you have two options that you're deciding between, and they are of great impact. It is going to matter. I say to you, in a year, is this going to affect your happiness? And your answer is yes. And they're not particularly reversible. So I'll give you an example that's not a business example. And then I'll tell you a business one. But like, let's say that you're thinking about, I'm going to take my big vacation this year and it's not COVID. So you can go anywhere. And you've narrowed it down to Paris or Rome. Well, I mean, obviously this is a huge decision. It's going to cost a lot of money. It's not a repeating option, at least not for most people, unless you're a jet setter, right? Which most people aren't. So maybe this is the only vacation you're going to get to take, you know, that year could be the only European vacation you get to take in your life. Ooh, that's really hard, right? It's going to cost a lot of money. It's got a lot of downside. It's not quittable, right? Like once you get there, what are you going to do? Like, oh, it didn't work out. I'm going to get on a plane and come home. <laughs> that's not really going to happen. Okay. So it, so it kind of fails all of those tests. And I'm going to talk about it as if it's a Paris and Rome decision, but this would also be like, you're trying to fill a CFO position and you have two great candidates. These come up like all the time. So now when we're thinking about those two decisions, what happens is that you get it narrowed down to those two. And what are you doing? You're like on TripAdvisor. You're asking everybody if they've been. It's like the most anxiety ever. Like this is supposed to be like such a fun thing. And yet like you're just having like an anxiety attack about like which one should I go to? 
So what we want to do is step back from these types of decisions and say, what is it exactly that's making us go so slow and causing us all this anxiety? And it's that the decision that the options that we're considering are so close to each other. There's not a lot of difference, at least from the perspective of someone who's non-omniscient and does not have a time machine, between the difference, you know, what's the difference between Paris and Rome, right? They're both great European cities. They both have beautiful architecture, lots of history, amazing food. They're both walkable. Like when we think about what are the things that the features that we can sort of know about, there's kind of no difference between the two. And you can get that when you have two great candidates come down the pike for CFO, for example, or even two great candidates for the internship, which by the way, that you should go fast on because it's low impact, but assume that you're in that situation. So basically what happens here is the decision feels hard because the options are so close. So what we need to do is step back from that and basically say to ourselves, well, do we actually given that we're non-omniscient, have the ability to parse these things apart? And the answer is no, because the information that we actually need is how does it turn out, right? You're hiring a CFO off of CV references, some interviews and so on and so forth. Like what's the information that you could find out that would actually help you to distinguish between those two choices? It would be having the person in the job. So it's just not accessible to us. So the way that we can find out when we're in this situation is to apply the only option test. If Rome were my only option for a great European vacation, would I be ecstatic? Yeah, yes. If Paris were the only option for my great European vacation, would I be ecstatic? Yes. That's what's holding us up is that they both satisfy the only option test. But once you step back and you say, well, hold on, let me try the only option test here. And it turns out that they're both great options. Go with your gut. That's a great time to go with your gut or flip a coin because there's no difference between the two anyway. So you have to remember when, when you get into these decisions that feel really hard in this way, then it actually means that the decision is quite easy because it means that the options are the same, which then brings us back to this really important principle for thinking about how do we get out of this paralysis by analysis is that we need to start thinking about our decisions as thresholding problems. So we're trying to get something over the threshold where it would satisfy the only option test. So basically you think to yourself, what's the threshold under which I would willing to exercise this option? Now for something like an intern, that threshold should be lower because it's a lower impact decision that's more reversible. For something like a CFO, that decision should be higher. For where I'm gonna go on a little weekend trip, the threshold should be lower than for my European vacation. But you figure out what that threshold is. And then once it's above the threshold, you're done with all your work. So now once you've decided, okay, these options are the same, let me flip a coin, you can just do literally one final step. Is there something I could find out that would make me change my mind? And if the answer is no, which it will be most of the time, you just go ahead with it. If the answer is yes, you still have to ask yourself one more question, which goes back to something I said earlier, which is, can I afford it? Because like in the case of the CFO, yes, there's something I could find out that would make me change my mind if I actually had them in the job, but I can't afford that. There's something maybe I could go dig around and find out like every person that this person has ever worked with and call all of them. Can I afford it? Probably not because there may be a time limit on when the, the job expires. And then you can also ask, would that actually change my mind? Right. And the answer to that is probably no. So once you sort of say to yourself, you sort of reframe and say, can I get my mind changed? You could become okay with the fact that you're uncertain, right? Of course, I don't know 
whether I'm going to like Paris or Rome better, because that's just the way that you make decisions. Of course, I'm not going to know which CFO is actually the better one for me to hire because that's our condition as human beings. So I don't need to be 100% sure about one option or the other. I just need to understand how those options stack up relative to each other. If they're identical, I flip a coin. If they're not identical and there's one that actually does appear to be a winner, it shouldn't matter that I'm not 100% sure about it because it satisfies the only option test and the other one doesn't. So therefore, I'm done. Annie, this whole conversation was so packed with tools that are applicable to our everyday lives because let's be honest, decisions is things we do on a daily basis all the time. And what you've just shared with us is so much powerful ways we can look at decision-making from a very different lens to bring us our level of maturity in decision-making to make us better at doing them, to be able to look back at them and do it in a way that's not as biased as we usually do it. And I know this is just the tip of the iceberg. So I want to give a very good decision for people to consider right now, which is have a look at how to decide simple tools for making better choices is the book that was just released by Annie Duke. This will be a powerful tool in your toolbox for something that you know you do on a regular basis that will save you time, make you make some more accurate decisions. It's going to be so powerful for you to keep by your side for both business and personal reasons. And of course, I'm having so much fun also because we have a live audience. Uh, for those of you on the podcast who don't know, we have videos and we have a live chat and a lot of people are making some big debates on why Paris and Rome, which one's better, which is really <laughs> funny to monitor. And I do want to give a quick shout out that if you'd like to be a Valley member, be able to join these conversations, go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman. And of course, as a recap, we really went into the art of decision-making. We make a lot of mistakes. Even in my example, it was so powerful to see Annie being able to critique the way that I looked at the stock market and how I had my own biases based on new information. We don't always have that information. And so it's not a question of making better decisions just because we look back at the new data is what did we make our decision based out of and how do we level up the process of making our decisions? I love that we looked at the ways that we look internally and externally and how you can actually start leveling up your decision-making by seeking to find more external information that's going to support your internal decision-making frameworks, your gut instinct, your confirmation biases, all of our emotional reasons for making decisions should be checked into with more rational, more tools, which we had shared today. I love this only option test. I love all of the process we discussed towards the end that really allows you to make the decisions quicker. And sometimes, yes, you can flip a coin when you see the consequences aren't that great. This conversation was fascinating. Annie, it was such a treat to have you on this call. For those of you who are curious, I'll make sure that there are some more notes in the show notes where you can discover more of her work, pick up her book as well. And we're going to be continuing with a short Q&A since we're almost out of time as well. But thank you so much for joining us, everybody, superhumans, and Annie as well. Thank you so much for being on the call. Thank you. Once again, everybody, thanks for tuning in to Superhumans at Work. I'm very grateful for all of you who tune in on a regular basis, listening to these amazing interviews with these guests that I get to find. Now, if you're subscribed to the show, definitely leave us a review if you can and share it with friends so that we can spread the message and get more people to be able to learn of these fantastic ideas that they can bring in their everyday life. And these episodes, of course, are brought to you by Mindvalley. When you go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman, you get to discover the transformational education that we get to deliver where we bring the best technology, the best teachers, and ensure that it teaches you what leads to a truly incredible life. Thanks again for tuning in and watching the show. And until next time, stay superhuman. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mindvalley podcast.